Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We'll be in chapter 4. We'll be looking at really some of the themes from chapter 2, 4, and 6 this morning, but we're going to read from Nehemiah 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you, and this morning's passage can be found on page 400. Uh, Just because the deadline is approaching, I just want to give one more um, appeal for Porter Brook. Uh, Porter Brook is our missional theology meets street level theology. So we believe that the essence of the church is to be a missionary one. We don't just exist for the sake of ourselves, but to um, reach our cities. And so we are looking for God to make those truths explosively alive in our hearts so that um, the gospel is transferred um, and modeled in some significant ways. Uh, There will be a a vision night this Friday night at uh, Chuck Geschwind's house at 630. Um, And just this is just an appeal. I I, I don't have a chance to meet with everyone uh, every Sunday, which I, I I wish that I could, but there are a number of people that are traveling to this church from other cities. Um, We are about church planting. If you have any desire to see a church like Fellowship planted in your city, um, at least reach out to us so that we can talk about how Porterbrook might be able to help us to reach your context. So that is my plug for Porterbrook. Um, Nehemiah chapter 4. I want to begin with a, a quote from Scotty Smith and I want to do this for two reasons. One, I think it really encapsulates what we're going to talk about. Two, I want you to get the book. Um, It's called Every Season Prayers. It's gospel-centered prayers for the entire life. And so um, just every once in a while, like a a resource that comes along that's so good that everyone should have it. This is one of those. I mean, it has um, prayers for every season of life, whether you're suffering, whether you're rejoicing, whether you're battling addiction and sin, whether you're encouraged, discouraged, church planting, um, and they just focus on Jesus. So every season prayers, uh, and I'm going to read you a little bit of it so that you can get a flavor for it, and I hope want to pick up the book. He begins by reading a, a familiar scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And this is his prayer around that. Dear Heavenly Father, this well-known, beloved verse simultaneously confronts us and comforts us. It confronts that part of us that wishes you would simply baptize the plans that we make for ourselves. We'd write stories that include as little disruption and change as possible. Few surprises and no suffering. Tons of familiarity and predictability and very little actual need for faith and waiting. In essence, we'd love for you to be more of a sugar daddy than Abba Father. He's from North Carolina. That's a familiar term if you've been in that part of the country. Thank you for your kindness and patience with us. And so that's a... that's. An, an essence of what you will get from Scotty Smith, who's just a wonderful gospel-centered thinker. Um, but what he picks up on there is crucially important for us as we look at the topic of renewal and rebuilding. It's the fact that most of us, if we're writing our own stories, right, we, 
wouldn't do it the way that God does it, right? We would have very little actual need for faith, very little actual need for endurance, but actually God is about building those things into us through the process of renewal. Um, I think, and this, is, this may seem a little remote, but I think we would personally like to have about as much drama as the 1966 version of Batman, the Adam West version. So I think I have a a picture up here. If you've not seen the show, I'm sure this will um, compel you to want to see it. But this um, exercise in just absolute absurdity, this is the episode where Batman has a shark attached to his leg. And he calls down to, or he calls up to Robin, who is in the bat copter, and asks for the bat shark repellent to be passed down. Right? So, I mean, we can deal with that level of drama. Like, we like it when we think that we've got all the tools in our belt and we can handle that level of discomfort. I mean, I, mean, I want a little bit. You can take it down because it'll be distracting. <laughs> but we like to know that there's a little bit of tension, a little bit of drama, just as long as we can take a little bit of faith, a little bit of scripture that we've memorized, maybe throw up a little prayer. Um, we, we don't mind that kind of difficulty. But here's the reality for most of us. This is the reality for most of us this week. We're often out of our depth, right? We're often over our heads. We've been taught, at least in an American version of Christianity, to overly value the path of least resistance, right? I mean, that's, that's where we naturally want to go. The problem with the path of least resistance is that's not really living. That's just existing, right? And more than that, the path of least resistance kind of isolates us from the power of God. God's strength and his mercy and his grace, they all meet us at the end of our resources. And so um, if we're never outside of our depth and we're never out over our head, we're just merely existing. But the place where God wants to meet us all this morning is that place where we're experiencing difficulty. That place where we're experiencing opposition. And what we're going to see as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning is that... um, We have a real enemy who wants to use the difficulties in our lives to discourage us, to cause unbelief, to cause us to want to turn away from God and his promises and his goodness. But God has a redemptive plan in the midst of opposition, and that's to show us his great grace, his great power. And listen, this is the way that you actually overcome your fears. It's not by never going through them, but it's actually God taking you in the midst of your fears, in the midst of the difficulty, and revealing his faithfulness and his power in the midst of those things. And as we do that, it slowly begins to change us, and we see the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God. And that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you have your Bible open, would you stand with me? We're going to read the first nine verses. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? 
Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And then this is Nehemiah speaking. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, I pray in this moment that you would actively visit us with the power of your spirit, that your spirit would be active among us, illuminating your word, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. I pray that you would transform our hearts. I also pray for those that need tangible relief in the midst of suffering and opposition, that you would comfort them in the way that only you can. I pray that you would help us as we're looking at your word to see Jesus, who is our great hope. To do that, Father, I pray that you would help me to proclaim this word um, to my friends that I love, and I pray that this would have an enduring effect, not only for now, but for the rest of our lives as we begin to see things the way that you see them, as we live out our calling to be restorers in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. You don't even have to be or consider yourself a Christian this morning to know that life can be difficult and life can be hard. I'm not going to have to convince anyone of the reality of opposition that exists in our lives. I'm going to look at some of the themes of chapter 4 and chapter 6 this morning. And um, there's a real tension between Sanballat and Tobiah who are actual historical figures that live out in the story of God on the pages of Scripture and the theological Um, themes that they represent that really tend to encapsulate all of the evil that we face throughout all of our life. I mean, the truth is that we have a real enemy in our hearts. We have a real enemy that exists in this world that wants to oppose every act of renewal and rebuilding that we put our hands to. I mean, just think about this in in the context of the church. How many people do you think actually keep themselves on the sideline because they don't feel like they're worthy to be used by God? I think that's a small number or a large number. See, some of us come in this room week after week daring to hope that what we're talking about is true, that God is not finished with us yet, that he actually 
can take the difficult things and the shame that we've experienced in the past and redeem it and rebuild it and use it to build something beautiful. That's what Nehemiah chapter 4 is about. It's about taking those laws that we tend to believe and see God build something beautiful in place of that. We're going to see some of the laws that the enemy presents to us, and then we're also going to see some of God's ways to help us to fight. So the first point that we're going to look at this morning is that the call of renewal leaves us vulnerable to attack. The call of renewal leaves us vulnerable to attack. Opposition is inevitable. Opposition happens because progress is happening. Progress means that there will be opposition. We have a real enemy in the Christian life and he hates everything that God loves. He hates people because they're made in the image of God. He hates Christians in particular because you have the seeds and the down payment of renewal living inside of you by virtue of the person of the Holy Spirit. So there is a real way that opposition is inevitable for us. And I hope this message serves in two ways this morning. One is I hope it's preparatory for us. Because as we're talking about seeing our city renewed in the power of the gospel through the strength of the Holy Spirit. As we talk about planting churches in this gospel-barren region, there will be opposition. There's going to be a moment for some of you in this room, when you go out on a church planting team, you will stand up in front of this stage and we will lay hands on you and we will send you out and there will be cries and there will be cheers and there will be faith. And then the very next week, you're going to be in a new city and there's going to be about 20 or 30 of you and you're going to think, what in the world were we thinking? There's, this message is supposed to help prepare us for moments like that. There's also... Um, a, a real aspect where I believe that the heart of the Father, for those of you that just say, I'm under it right now. Like I feel opposition everywhere that I go. That the Father is present by His Spirit to illuminate His Word, to give you tangible relief. And I would put myself in that category. It's God is positioned to meet us through his word. And that's what I love about his story. Um, The theme of opposition really is on every page of scripture. You can read about the triumphs of God's people, but right on the very next page, you're going to see the difficulty that they continue to go through. The enemy has one purpose for that thing that we're going through, and God has another, which is to redeem and to restore it. And I think what makes it so difficult is that it's more constant than we imagine, right? I mean, opposition is everywhere. For many of us, there's just a few moments where we experience relief. It's more intense than we imagine. We think, surely this has to be it. Like, if there's one more thing, like, it's going to break. It's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, like, There's several people in this room. That's what's true for you right now. But in the midst of all of that, we have to pan out and be able to see God's purposes in the midst of the opposition that we experience each and every day. Because every renewal 
effort will be opposed. I mean, just, just think about it in the context of the things that you want to see happen in your own life. I mean, if it's you're here and you know, like, I, I need spiritual renewal. Like, before we even talk about reaching the city, I, I, I need God to act on me. Well, I can promise you that that will be opposed. Like, no matter when you set aside time to want to look at his word or to pray, there's going to be about a million things that are going to seem more interesting than that at that moment. That's opposition, right? For those of you that want to see the gospel transferred from our generation to our children's generation, there's going to be times where you pray and you plead and you cry and you're just getting blank stares from your kids. That's opposition, God has something to say in the midst of that. There's going to be some of you that God's prompting and and you have the gift of generosity and you begin to sow seeds into the kingdom and the next thing you know, right, you have a major car repair go down and you're wondering, what in the world is going on? When those kinds of things happen, it, it leaves us vulnerable because for most of us, at least in the American version of Christianity, like if we're following God, that's supposed to mean a pain-free and a comfort-seeking existence, right? That's the version of Christianity that exists in America. Like if, if we're in the midst of pain and we're in the midst of difficulty, that means we missed God. But if you look at the theme of Scripture, the very place that you're going to find opposition is when you are on the path following Him, trusting him, stepping out in faith, and I promise you it will be in those moments that you will meet opposition. So opposition can come in the form of people, as in the book of Nehemiah. It can be the voice of the enemy. It can be the voice of shame. It can be the voice of condemnation. It can be discouragement. It can be self-doubt. Sometimes all of these things at the same time. Those are the places that God wants to meet us. So where, right now, are you experiencing opposition? That is the place that God wants to reveal his mercy and his power and his salvation in your life. The truth is, as you look at the book of Nehemiah, vision can only take you so far. Vision produces inspiration. We need vision. But... If we're talking about depth, and we're talking about endurance, and we're talking about how to live life when everything seems like it's crashing down, those kinds of roots can only take place in the midst of real opposition where we see God show up over and over again. God wants to build that kind of depth into us. So the enemy's goal is to undermine the character of God He wants to reframe the conversation from the difficulty that you're going through. And he wants to kind of airbrush God out of the picture. Um, Now, this will be hopefully a humorous illustration. Um, I have friends from the past and family members, and I will allow them to remain safely anonymous. But it seems to be on social media that they will um, all of a sudden have this new person in the picture. You don't really know the backstory, but they're um, attached to this new person. And it's a pretty good picture, but you know that that picture is not going to last. Like uh, a couple of weeks later, their profile picture is going to be just them with the other person cropped out. You know, we all have those friends and it's okay. To, like it's okay to laugh, right? Like, oh, I guess that didn't work out, but you still kind of have the, the remnants of that picture. Well, that's kind of what the enemy wants to do when you step out in faith. 
He wants you to be able to see all of the difficulty, all of the pain, all of the trial, and somehow have God cropped out of the picture. The enemy doesn't really mind if you have vision, but it's when you begin to step out and when you begin to act that it's going to feel like all hell is breaking loose against you. So the enemy's plan is to remove the goodness and the faithfulness of God. The enemy doesn't mind giving you a different picture of God, the God that you experience when you're experiencing shame. Right? He doesn't mind if you think of God in terms of the God that's out to get you or the God that's out to expose you or to do you harm. He doesn't mind if you turn to that God. He doesn't mind if you turn to a God that's kind of just a, a storybook, fairy kind of figure that um, maybe can do good if we do the right things and throw up some prayers. He doesn't mind if you think about that kind of God. What the enemy wants you to keep from seeing is the God that is all-powerful, all-merciful, all-knowing, all-loving, that is 100% for you all the time, no matter what you see with your eyes. That's what he wants to blind you from seeing. He wants you to see all of the difficulty and all of the pain without the glory and the majesty and the power of God. And that is his trick, and he does it over and over and over again. Renewal is primarily about God and what he's doing in the world. The tricks of the enemy focus on us, our failures, our limitation, our shame, our past. So the trick for us as we begin to step out and do works of faith is that we keep our eyes fixed on the faithfulness of God despite our unfaithfulness. That's the message of the book of Nehemiah. The purpose of it, you can see, look at verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That's the tactic of the enemy. Right? He knows he can't stop the activity and the progress of the gospel, but he certainly wants to bring about confusion. Now, opposition in the book of Nehemiah comes in the form of these two men, Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, like if we had any kind of Hebrew background, we would say, you know Sanballat is the bad guy because his name means sin is life. So he would be wearing the, the black hat, right? It's pretty obvious that he's going to be the bad guy in the story. And, and Tobiah, whose name actually means, I think, Yahweh is good, Um, he's somebody that kind of just took up residence. Um, For those of you that have ever had renters, um, he's a squatter. Like he basically lives inside the temple and um, he's basically enjoyed the posh lifestyle of the the exile. So after everybody was moved out of the area, he decided he was going to take up residence in the temple and that was going to be his pad. So Sanballat and Tobiah were really angry at the people of God when they said, we're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, you have to ask yourself, like, why are these guys mad that they're going to rebuild the city? And the short answer is, there are people that profit off the exploitation of other people, right? There's people that profit off of brokenness. They love to see the poor exploited. They take advantage of young girls that are underprivileged, and they see them, you know, forced into the sex trade and pornography. There's people that take advantage of the poor with high interest loans. 
That's what these guys are like. So they're profiting off of the brokenness of other people. So they are um, greatly opposed to the work of God. Now, listen if you can understand the voice of the enemy. See how it sounds in your ears and in your life. Look at verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside them, and he said, yes, What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So you can hear the mocking voice of the enemy. Shaming them. Making fun of them. Like, we don't talk like these guys, but basically he's like, your work's a joke. Like, if a little fox gets up on top of this wall, you call that rebuilding? And said, it's all going to come tumbling down. So the enemies are there while they are on the ground, while they are actually feverishly working, taking stones that have been underground for, I mean, really for the better parts of decades, and they are breaking up the fallowed ground, and they are putting them one on top of the other, and there's just these guys, and they are just constant. They are just mocking them in their ears. What in the world are you doing? Who do you think you are? Now, just take this into whatever you want to see God do in your own life. You're going to hear voices like this. You're never going to succeed at what you're doing. What you're doing makes no difference at all. What you're doing is insignificant. By the way, you are insignificant. You lack the strength. You lack the resources. Mocking voices telling you of your past, mocking voices, telling you why you will never succeed, mocking voices, trying to take you away from the promises of God. You remember that time when you failed? You remember that time where you promised you would never do that thing again? Well, guess what? You did it again. God's never going to use you. You are disqualified from the promises of God. That's the voice of the enemy that's meant to bring you discouragement, that's meant to bring distraction. It's the voice of fear. It's the voice of shame. It's the voice of doubt. It's anything and everything that wants to take you away from the promises of God. And it is the constant companion of the people of God. But most of us don't like to talk about it because it exposes our need, it exposes our weakness, it exposes the shame that we so often feel. But in the midst of all of that, we have a God that is with us. So every voice, whether it is from an actual human being, whether it's from our own doubt, whether it's from the enemy of our souls, all of those things are things that need to be silenced by the good news of Jesus Christ. Every lie that you believe It causes you to think of yourself less than what God has declared you to be in the gospel is straight from the pit of hell. Everything that is meant to distract you from the mission that God has given us, those things are lies. And the most dangerous thing that we can do as the people of God, because it seems plausible, is to listen. Right? 
Because every time that we give ear to this voice, it grows louder and louder. And the voice of God and the voice of truth and the voice of the resurrection grows smaller and smaller. So we need to constantly remind ourselves of the faithfulness and the promises of God. And we can't do, what we're going to see is we can't do this on our own. We need each other to do this. Brandon Hatmaker, in his new book, he says this. He says, I'm convinced that one of Satan's greatest strategies is to cause believers to live in doubt. When he keeps us confused and insecure, we spend our lives navel-gazing or looking inward and wondering whether or not we're even saved. It's hard to focus on new life and mission in Christ when we're worried about the old life that is gone. Fear and shame are strategies of the enemy. That said, each of us should believe the promise, the promise of Scripture, reject spiritual doubt, and live in the freedom and confidence that Christ offers. So the constant companions of fear and shame and doubt. It is those places that God wants to use the opposition that exists in your life for you to be able to experience his salvation and his power. So we're going to look at the ways that God begins to help us to experience the victory that is already ours. That's our point number two, exposing our hearts to the victory that is already ours. Look back at chapter 2. Last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20. This would be one to underline. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven, he's talking to Sanballat and Tobiah, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build Listen to the second part. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So simultaneously, we talked about this last week, they took up the cause to rise and build, and they declared to their enemies, you have no right, you have no claim, and you have no portion in Jerusalem. Okay, so use the example of Tobiah, who is a squatter, who is living in the temple of God, that is stopping worship from happening for the people of God. There comes a point in time when you have to kick Tobiah to the curb, right? There comes a time when you have to stop believing the lies. You have to say with your mouth and with all of your strength, I will not listen to you. You have no right. You have no claim. You have no portion on the promises and the people of God. I will live by faith in the promises of God for the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me on the cross. I will not listen to this nonsense anymore. That's the first lesson. There comes a time when we must fight back. There comes a time when we must rebuild in faith and silence the voice of the enemy. 1 John 3, 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's a precious verse for the people of God. So what are his tools? Fear, shame, doubt, discouragement, division, and so on and so forth. And everything that is coming against you. Jesus came to actively deliver and destroy those things in your life. So the things that Satan means for your harm, God means for your good... 
to the point that He gave up His own Son on the cross so that we are not destroyed by the tools of the enemy, by fear and shame and discouragement in our lives. So, I had to use a little bit of the, the whole book to kind of help us to understand how this happens. Because this isn't explicitly in this text, and I don't want to teach you to read your Bible wrongly. But if you look at the whole book, this whole book is about worship. This is about the people of God throwing out the lies and the chains of the past and believing God is who he says he is. Therefore, they are who he says they are. So the most famous verse in Nehemiah comes in chapter 8, verse 10, where it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Most of us are familiar with that verse. Worship is the way forward, right? There comes a time when you're listening to the lies, where you're listening to the enemy. But the way that we move forward, and we just did it this morning in the midst of worship, is to say, I'm going to connect the thing that I'm going through to the character and the promises of God. We don't sing because it's tradition. We sing because it's warfare. We sing because we don't believe, not because we have it all together. So we're up here, like last week we're singing, the atmosphere is changing here. We're singing that by faith. And you know what? In the midst of that, the atmosphere actually changes. Right? When we take our eyes off of the lies of the enemy, off of our failures, off of our shortcomings, and we look at them in light of the promises and the goodness of God, things begin to change. I want to share this story from a friend whose name is Alan Frau. Um, he's a teacher and taking a church planting course, and he taught the course in California for me a few weeks ago. And as a newly married man, he was badly overextended. And I, I think, honestly, if you look at this room, there's a lot of people in this room that are overextended. And he had a couple of jobs. He was trying to serve faithfully in a local church. And he went through a season where he just couldn't sleep at night. He would wake up in the middle of the night shaking, afraid. He calls them night terrors. And he, he, he tells the story of how his wife, you know, who married him and thought he was this very stable person, as he began to be run down, began to experience real trial and real difficulty, she began to pray for him and things got better she began even though she didn't consider herself to be a singer to sing over him and the atmosphere in their room began to change in the middle of the night and this is his reflections on that time and I want to share this because I think it's important and it's kind of where I want to land for us this morning he says worship is warfare when God's people were besieged by a great multitude from Edom He commanded their leader, Jehoshaphat, to stand firm, sing, and see the salvation of God. As the people sang to the Lord, he set an ambush on the enemy. Paul and Silas sang hymns to God after being unjustly beaten, imprisoned, and put in stocks for delivering a slave girl of a demon. And and, and as they sang, God sent an earthquake that rattled the prison doors open and broke the prisoners free. The jailer and his whole family were saved because of this act of God and the example of Paul and Silas. And this is what he said. He said, I recently, this happened in 1994, the night terrors. He said, I recently asked my wife, 
what she thought that we may, we may have lost as worship in the church. And more recently, she said, I think in the last decade, we have recovered doctrinal depth in our worship. And I would agree with that. But we may have lost some of the expectation of encounter as we sing to the resurrected Christ. And he says, I tend to agree. And I wholeheartedly agree. We live in a context where what they're talking about may not have ever been any of our experience. Where you're singing a song and the presence of God speaks right to where you are and you're different. That's what they're talking about. He says, songs in the night are a bending of the heart, the mind and will towards the greatness and the goodness of our God rather than the toughness of our situation. Job sang a song to the Lord after he had lost his children and his possessions. The Lord gives, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes a song in the night doesn't change the situation immediately, but it changes our perspective on the situation. Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples after he had been betrayed by Judas at the Last Supper. In fact, on the cross, he cried out directly from the Psalms, which was Israel's hymn book. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Worship sustained Jesus on the cross as he suffered to purchase our salvation. Singing songs in the night is not only glorifying to God and good for us, it's empowering for others. There may be people in your family, church, and nation, people who need you to sing to them through the dark night of their soul. He says, in the words of Ross Graham, I may need you to sing for me until I can sing for myself. So there's a lot here, that, but that's a theology of worship. And our next series after we're out of the book of Nehemiah is going to be on worship. But singing songs when everything else seems dark, when things are confusing and they don't make sense, that's an avenue for faith and belief to begin to take root in our hearts and our souls. Corporate worship is designed for us to gather, to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs so that we believe, but so that the person that's next to us, that we don't have any idea what their week was like, that they can be sustained as we all believe that we've joined together around the resurrected Christ. That's the purpose of corporate worship. That's why we gather to encourage one another and to strengthen one another. So I pray that the atmosphere changes and we are experiencing God in great ways through worship. But I pray that worship for you doesn't become just an obligatory thing, but it becomes warfare for your soul. It becomes the place where you confront the lies of the enemy and you encounter the presence and the victory of God. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And this is what brought me the greatest hope this week. And I'm going to close with this. What sustains us when... You can't see straight and you feel like you are empty and you don't know how you're going to go on. What sustains you in those moments is Jesus' victory on the cross, but it's also looking forward to that ultimate victory that there's going to be a day when accusation ceases forever. When we only know the smile of God 
Can you imagine what it would be like to live like that for an hour? No doubts, no fears, no discouragement. That's the hope of the Christian life. So we look forward to that day and it sustains us today when things are difficult. And it sustains us when things around us don't make sense. The way that we stand firm in the midst of opposition is to know that our God fights for us. That he's with us and that he is for us. And we're going to continue to um, think about that and to reflect on that as we take communion. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your great sustaining love for us. Thank you that the loudest and the strongest voice that defines us is not the voice of our shame and our fears and our inability, but the voice of the Savior crying out on the cross that it is finished for us. I do pray that you would renew and restore those of us that feel under the weight of real opposition. I pray that you would, in these moments, that you would allow us to taste and see that you're good. I do pray that we would experience worship as warfare for the difficulties that we're going through in our life and that your presence would be real, tangible, and sustaining and transform our perspective as we leave here today. In Jesus' name. Amen.